0: Welcome to Kansas Rural Center Presents, the Kansas Rural Center's podcast on farming, agricultural policy, civic engagement, and much more happening in the Sunflower State. I'm your host, Ryan Gertzen-Regeer, the program and admin manager here at KRC, and in this series of our podcast, we're presenting reflections from Kansas farmers about the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill and how it could assist farmers with improving soil health and conservation practices on their farms. Co-hosting this episode with me is Zach Pastora, environmental champion and the president of KRC's Board of Directors. And joining us to talk about the 2023 Farm Bill is Panta Leon from Lawrence, Kansas. Thanks for joining us, Panta. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connections to farming?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, my name is Panta Leon. Um, I run Masai Wild Alquali Farms here in North Lawrence. Uh, that means the People's Farms in Nahua. Um, I lease land actually currently from the county, so I'm in, in an incubator farm program, uh, which is really the only way I would be able to access land in the first place. Uh, I know there's um, a few terms for how I'm categorized as a farmer, and I know the Farm Bill and um, the USDA use the term socially disadvantaged farmer, and so from that from that perspective, um, I am a farmer of color, so I am. Uh, a, my my ancestors are Mexican, so Mexica um, from the Mecan nation. And so, um, you know, having that land access is also super important to me because a lot of people like me can't afford to have that. And so having that county connection um, is really amazing. You know, we we pay a hundred dollars per acre per year, and then we have city irrigation water lines that we obviously, you know, we pay our, our water bills on. Um, but the farm, yeah, so the farm itself, Uh, is a no-till and no fossil fuel machine farm it's on uh, just shy of an acre and I've typically done uh, farmers markets have really done intensive vegetable cropping uh, perennial herbs and then uh, fruits as well primarily focusing on strawberries and uh, as of recently grapes Um, in addition to those uh, that extensive kind of vegetable cropping I also do some plant breeding so I've been breeding a strain of elote conico corn from Guanajuato, where my great grandfather's from, uh, for the last four years. So it's in its fourth generation, just finished harvest. Uh, and then I also have peanuts that are from Guanajuato. So all these seeds are coming from the uh, the seed, seed banks around the country. So the, the corn came from the one in Ames, the peanuts came from the, the station in Atlanta or in Georgia. I'm not sure if it's in Atlanta um and I just harvested those had a really good a really good seed crop from 25 peanuts to I don't know we'll see how many the count is but it was it was a good amount I got a couple eight quarts full of peanuts that was pretty good off of 25 plants um and then I also am working towards uh adding beans and squash I had some seeds from the seed bank this year that didn't fare too well um and then what's the other one who am I forgetting oh peas I also have a um a sugar snap pea, or I guess it's, it's better as a snow pea, I think, from Guanajuato as well, and it's a land race uh, variety also from the seed bank in, I believe, Washington state. So yeah, the farm does, uh, you know, food production, uh, plant breeding, and then also research. So I would also have done a, a USDA SARE farmer rancher grant where I did a comparative yield analysis on corn. So I, I compared uh, no-till You know um seed drilled or jab planted in my case uh systems to systems that are outlined in this codex that i have from the 1500s and the results of that long story short are the indigenous planting methods actually produced depending on the population between three to six percent more uh, more yield and so uh yeah so the farm is kind of threefold if i had to put it into three things Uh, it's food production obviously uh breeding and research, and then there's also some food justice components, too, that have ebbed, ebbed and flowed as, as I've uh, done the farm. Uh, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of different projects going with that one, but um, I really enjoy, you know, learning more about sustainable agriculture, not only from like a current, you know, agricultural research perspective, but also from, you know, looking into those much older texts, like uh, the one I was talking about from the 1500s about uh, how land was managed uh, by my ancestors.
0: That's awesome. I always really enjoy seeing what you're up to and, and what you're thinking about in, in all those areas. Um, what what kind of brought you to farming or, or, you know, the background of maybe your family's history in agriculture? What do you, what brought you to farming? What do you really enjoy about it? Or you know, if you had to pick something out of just, you know, you get up in the morning and you say, yes, I'm excited about this. Do you have anything like that?
1: Yeah, so I I came into farming in a really roundabout way. I was actually a teacher. Um, I taught English as a second language in a couple different countries. And then also here during graduate school, I have my master's in curriculum and instruction. Um, And I kind of found myself after graduate school really not able to find uh, a job. Actually, the university that I went to had promised I would have access to the practice exam to be a certified teacher. And that turned out not to be true. And so i wasn't able to take the test and become a classroom teacher which is it was super devastating in so many different ways and um, there weren't too many job opportunities around here and so i moved out to california and worked in private english teaching industry for a little bit but had also been volunteering um, at a community food security project called spiral gardens out in berkeley california and I, had, I guess I'd put in so many volunteer hours and so much sweat equity that one day they just approached me and said, do you want to co-direct our nonprofit? And I was like, of course I do. And so we had a, an urban farm and a, a plant nursery, which is how we uh, made, made our money, kept the doors open, was actually selling vegetable, fruit and vegetable starts. Um, And it was the best way to jump into agriculture. You know, I got in from the, from that seed level and was able to, you know, start with the very basis of it, which is the soil, as we're talking about today. Um, Soil, seeds, and then, you know, of course uh, planting out on the urban farm and also taking care of chickens and ducks. I really miss those, that block. It was a pretty cool, pretty cool experience. So yeah, then, you know, three years of doing that California was pretty expensive and, uh, wanted to come home to Kansas. I was actually born in Topeka. So I uh, decided to move to Lawrence because of the incubator for, program in large part. Um, and also my familiar, familiarity with my undergrad and graduate degrees coming from KU. So uh, I knew Lawrence pretty well and got family in Topeka and Kansas City. So right right smack dab in the middle, uh, access to farmland, couldn't beat that. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's, that's how I kind of got into it. It was really, really roundabout way I uh, was kind of down on my luck and, you know, had bills to pay, picked up a shovel. And so, yeah, that's that's just kind of where, where my origin story. But, you know, I guess for me, what I've really noticed are my 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 enjoyable aspects of farming are the breeding and the research components. Um, you know, we uh, just have a, we have a baby at home, so I was a primary caregiver, a baby for the first nine months of their life, and really had to reconfigure everything with the farm. You know, I dropped market farming um, and had to super focus on the things that were important to me. You know, I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning, and I only had until about 9.30 to farm, um, and so my, my partner could get to their job and, you know, came home and took care of baby from 10 to midnight, 1, 2 a.m., you know? And so I really had to figure out, you know, what is most important to me? And that boiled down to the the Guanajuato seed breeding uh, and the plant research. And so those those are the things that I, um, no matter what I do with uh, my career, those are the things that I will always continue, uh, continue to do. I, I just really also want to be able to pass on um, seeds that were from my ancestors to to my kids too so uh that's that's also really important for me
2: and Ponta leone uh i get the pleasure of uh, getting to see you at the farmers markets occasionally and you're so you're still supporting the local food system but uh if you care to share uh, uh tell our listeners uh, what you're doing now and in, in helping uh, food and schools
1: Yeah, so I am uh, USD 497's Lawrence Public Schools um, experiential learning specialist. So I actually have two main job roles. One is uh, the work-based learning coordinator. So I help students find uh, job placements, apprenticeships, things like that. I'm going to be using it to get them into agriculture as much as I can as well. (laughs) Um, And then the other 60% of my job, I guess, is uh, the farm to school coordinator. So we're funded by Uh, the federal farm to school programs uh, to uh, my job is basically to coordinate uh, all of the garden coordinators in the district find them resources that they need help out with work days work orders from facilities and operations Um, and I have a very interesting position because we I may be one of the only district level farm to school coordinators in the state so most farm to school coordinators are going to be at the school level um, but when you really put it at this district level, we can do so much more. I mean, I just helped, I think, eight different schools apply for $2,000 grants that a lot of those educators wouldn't have had time to to do, um, you know, all that grant writing and reporting and stuff. And so having having this at a district level is really, really awesome and a really cool model. In addition to that, I'm able to really, um, you know, take part in a lot of panels on uh, child hunger. And uh, and And well school gardening too, that might otherwise not be able to if we were just at a school level. And currently also working with a state group um, to decide, you know Kansas's direction with farm to school as a state. Um, and so, you know if i if I'd just been school level, I may not have been involved in those conversations. And so, yeah, my role is is super interesting in that it's district level, uh, and I'm able to really, do a lot more I think than when you've got a school level farm to school coordinator so yeah I'm I'm really excited for this you know like as I mentioned earlier I kind of had the rug pulled out from under me uh in being involved in public education which is really my passion and so this is a way for me to not quite be that um that school teacher in the classroom license and all that that I wanted to be but to still be engaged with um education. And now, you know, obviously, I've been farming for the last six years to carry that passion with me um, to this work as well. So it's, it's really marrying the two, two of my passions as far as like work goes. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to get involved. I've only been here for two months, but um, it's been really great so far.
0: For people listening to the podcast who maybe haven't really heard of Farm to School or don't know a whole lot about that, do you have just a brief synopsis you would give about kind of what that entails in general?
1: Yeah. So I, if I remember correctly, it's actually funded through Title IV of the Farm Bill. And so it's for helping schools establish school gardens, um, involve uh, kids in the actual production of food. And you can really take it in many different directions. Some schools We'll just, um, you know, have gardens for them to check out during recess. I have, I have some gardens here that sell at market, um, which is pretty amazing too. You know, they actually pay two of their students to go to market and sell at market and that helps fund them. And so you can really do what's best for you locally once you um, are kind of in the farm to school network, which you, there's a, there's an application process to apply that happens every year for your school to get registered and fund get funded um and so yeah there's a lot of different models um and that's another cool thing about lawrence public schools is that we have what is it like 20 20 some odd schools that all have gardens now finally uh one of our high schools got its garden this year uh no soil in the raised beds yet but the garden is there (laughs) uh officially and so yeah it's just uh, a lot of different models with it but uh, it is funded by the federal government and hopefully we can convince our state government to uh, help bolster those programs and potentially take them over to, to fund them sustainably, you know, moving forward as well.
0: Does some of that also entails sourcing food from local farmers to, to get into the school cafeterias and snacks and stuff like that.
1: That is a component of it. Um, that is an extremely difficult component of it, actually. The procurement side is you know, has the potential to be really amazing, not just for the, for the, for our learners, but also for local producers. And I actually just got done compiling a report on every single district's food service uh, workforce right now. And as a state, we're not doing too hot. Um, About 30% of districts in the entire state um, are working with 80% or less of their actual capacity that they need in food service. And so sending them a thousand pounds of watermelon is sending them a thousand more extra hours of labor. And so we're, we're in a point right now where we have to figure out, um, you know, what can we reasonably send to these schools that won't just sit there and not get chopped? Because if I'm honest with you, you know, I went and worked a, a lunch service in one of our middle schools and it was um, you know, the, he- the head of our, our food service, a custodian, and me. And so that, that's kind of where we are with food service right now. And that state conversation, I think, is really important because what we really need to focus on first is making sure that that labor workforce is there before we even start talking about procurement. I know that there's uh, a few million dollars that has been set aside for proc- procuring stuff for local schools. Um, But if we don't have the people to take that stuff and chop it and put it on the line, then I don't I don't quite see the point in it. But um, but yeah, so we have a couple things to figure out before we can really get that procurement part rolling. Um, And then, of course, the other part is some of the rural schools and school districts don't even have many vegetable producers that would be selling into that type of market near them. And so then that becomes a logistics issue too. So procurement is a super exciting thing um, that I hope I can be really involved with knowing kind of the boots on the ground uh, situation to help make sure that, it's, um, that it actually happens in a, in a way that, that gets that food to those students and also doesn't overburden workers because that's something we really have to consider too.
2: Uh, Ponta, I want to kind of boomerang a little bit back to your farm operation because it's um, more unique in in a lot of ways than other um, um, folks we've talked to on this podcast series in the the sense that it's both no-till and no fossil fuels and focused on uh, food production is one part of it, along with plant research, et cetera, and uh, seed saving, et cetera. But you brought up the point about labor force for for the schools, but I imagine uh, no fossil fuels creates a a different labor dynamic for yourself and your farm. So I know I'm going to pack a lot into a question here, but I wonder what are the values underpinning why you chose to do your farm that way first? And then two, how does that, how do a better food system, a better farming system, uh, impact a uh, uh, labor dynamic. There you are.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to preface this with the, the internet commenter that always comes along with the no fossil fuel and cultivation and says, but that's not where the fossil fuel problem is in agriculture. I know. <laughs> I know that's not where the problem is. We'll name that right now. The problem with fossil fuel and agriculture is shipping produce 500 miles away when it could be grown right here right the the problem with fossil fuel and agriculture is not the tractor on the farm i i know this everyone out on the internet listening i know this uh, <laughs> but i did want to see what could be done without using it i mean there are systems uh that you can utilize um where you don't need it and i've i've kind of proven that you don't need it uh in a lot of different ways um and some ways you still do because scale, right? And scale is super important when we're talking about seriously feeding a lot of people. Um, so, just to kind of name off a few of the ways that no fossil fuel can work, um, I mean, cover cropping can definitely be done without the use of fossil fuels. Um, I typically will terminate um, cover crops with a scythe. Um, so, again, that does that takes more time, sure, but honestly, uh, the, the windrows that you get from size are really easy to pick up or leave right there in place in a three foot, a three foot long, you know, hundred foot long bed, essentially that will then, um, you know, break down and, and create a seed bed. Um, jab planting is another one that I mentioned and tractors of course can use seed drills. That's another great way. Um, but you know, jab planting a field, if you have more people involved is not too bad if you're doing it on a larger scale. Um, I would also say, you know, if you are moving more towards, you know, not using fossil fuel machinery, going back to your labor question, you de- do need more hands in that work. Um, running a solo operation is not something I will ever recommend to anyone, even though I'm over here, like kind of still doing it. Um, you know, it, it's amazing when you get, you know, you, you look at what you can make labor wise with one person as yourself, right? Uh, and then you add a couple of volunteer hands, which don't come along often, but when they do, it's amazing. And then you add four, five, six, and you start to see the amount you can produce just go up exponentially, every um, every extra person you tack on there. And so um, I know one of our problems right now is that we don't have enough people, one who even know how to grow or know what to do with agriculture in the first place, but we just don't have enough people in that workforce. And so I think if that were to increase... Um, and we were able to find ways to get more people involved. It would be good for a lot of reasons, um, but yeah, the labor component is tough. That is really tough, especially if I'm thinking of me as a market farmer, um, because you know, if you're a solo operation, you are the producer, the accountant, the marketing person, the sales guy. Um, you're you're all of it, right? And it's yeah, it's it's tough. And I would definitely recommend that folks try to gather a crew. To start these kind of operations, um, I may be veering from your question a little bit. Uh, was there is there a follow up in there that could lead? Well, me a little no, bit that's there? all.
2: That's all good. One of our other okay. uh, uh, speakers mentioned the point that the more heartbeats on the farm, the better, and uh, and that's certainly I think uh, good for human heartbeats as well. Uh, you know, uh, supporting the local food system, community supported agriculture. Uh, given more Kansas the opportunity for meaningful, uh, purposeful work uh, in agriculture, we've been seeing the the age of farmers go up in Kansas, and the and the size of farms uh, uh, get bigger, and the number of farms uh, and farmers get smaller. Uh, so it's just uh it's just too bad and and. I like the idea of, of more hands on deck uh, for uh, both the agricultural workforce, but hopefully that can translate in more edible food, healthy food, resilient farms, uh, better environmental impact for our community as well. So,
1: yeah, I absolutely love that more heartbeats on the farm when I'm, I'm going to, I'm borrowing that, that, that sounds like something <laughs> borrowed. That's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I love, I love that, that wording.
0: Pivoting a little bit to the the farm bill exclusively, I guess, uh, you know, we have focused with the podcast here on the conservation title of the farm bill, um, and that kind of surrounds a lot of the, the soil health initiatives. I believe uh, Equip and CSP programs are, are funded out of that title and some of the things that could help give you as a farmer some money or some cost share to be able to do some of those improvements that you want to. You talked about cover cropping and no-till on your farm. Are there other kind of soil health practices, um, different, maybe more natural amendments you put in the soil or, or you know, manures, fertilizers and things like that? Or, yeah, how you, if you do any grazing, anything like that in your operation?
1: Yeah, no, no grazing. We're not allowed to have animals because it's technically like coded a city parkland, So we're not allowed to have animals, unfortunately. I would totally um, have a crew of ducks or chickens if I could. Um, uh, really rotating crops is another really big one. So uh, the Guanajuato crops in particular, I wanna do three sisters rotated with peanuts. So that's like a hyper rotation, right? So you've already got that three sister community um, that's already really doing a lot of uh, assisting itself, but then following behind that was peanuts. Um, I want to see how that'll go. That'll happen, uh, next year since I just now have the seed crop for the peanuts. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, you know, really focusing on, on good rotations, um, thinking about, you know, cover crops that are allopathic. So if I know that there's a soil, uh, pest issue, um, you know, putting some of those down before trying to plant there again, and even, even letting things just be fallow for an entire season um i know a lot of people will go you know one one of their two or three rotations of crops just letting it go um fallow but i'll i'll wait a little bit longer um another part is creating spaces um for wildlife and i know a lot of farmers will really shy away from that part but i'm talking mostly about frogs and toads um and i've got uh some spots since i'm in river bottom soil i've got some spots that flood really heavily in the spring um, and so I went ahead and sectioned a couple of those off and let them kind of be what they are, um, and have seen, a, a really solid population of frogs and toads that come and eat a whole bunch of the things that I don't have to then spray for, because I've also never sprayed anything, uh, except for water on my farm. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, those, those are a couple extra ones, you know, creating a little more habitat, um, and like, kind of like buffer strips, pollinator strips, and, and really solid crop rotation are my main, main ones, yeah. And then I guess one other one I can add, uh, the corn that I grow um, actually has um, some of that, uh, and I'm gonna forget the term for it, but it's like a gel uh, that grows on the aerial roots. So some corn um, where this hasn't been bred out um, has this gel that forms and a, a bacteria has a symbiotic relationship with the plant wherein it eats atmospheric nitrogen and then converts it into nitrogen for the corn. Um, And so my inputs on my corn are basically non-existent because um, some of these varieties have shown that um, they can produce around 40% of the needed nitrogen for that corn. Uh, And that that component has been heavily bred out, not intentionally, but unintentionally um, for the purposes of making corn Uh, hyper productive and you know for for those kind of reasons but that's another that's another one is is using uh, plant symbiosis and and focusing on you know some of those older varieties that still have that in it um, and planting those because my my corn harvest was great this year and I didn't add anything um, other than uh, you know under sowing beans Um, and so yeah that's that's one other way
0: I guess in in terms of what you're able to do and what you want to do in the future are there maybe some soil health improvements on the farm that you kind of aspire to, but feel like hey maybe some extra cost share funding from a USDA program would be helpful, or maybe the USDA should stay out of my farm entirely. Or yeah, how do you how do you view some of those things? And are there are there programs that you um, would like to see more of? I guess Zach mentioned in a previous podcast, and I guess also in a op-ed that he and uh paul johnson our lobbyist, did for the kansas reflector about the rates of equip and csp um people who apply in kansas versus those who are funded and it was uh i i don't have it right in front of me but i think 23 percent of people who apply for equip get funded in kansas and and something relatively similar for csp and so we have a lot of room to grow people want to do conservation practices in kansas it seems like but the funding isn't there so um yeah, anything like that, what what, are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, that, that's a tough one for me because I did kind of like a historical primer. I wrote a historical primer on the farm bill and obviously conservation is a huge component in that post like 30s, 40s. Um, and so, you know, we have never had a program that has offset the destruction of agriculture or even really made it a zero sum game and so that's the tough part for me it's like I appreciate that there's thought in that but it feels like or at least it I think it reads even in in actual codified um, legislation uh, it reads we're gonna do this x amount of damage and that's how it starts and we can't start with like we're gonna do this damage <laughs> uh, which is a very realist way to start and it maybe that's just super pragmatic but Um, It starts with, we're going to do X amount of damage, and then we're going to try to do Y amount of funding to potentially offset. Instead of, we're going to protect X amount of things that are already destroyed, like water systems being one of the main ones, and then we're going to allow X amount of damage and hopefully offset it by funding things that start with that first component instead of um, taking a damages first component, like pr- uh, approach to it. Um, I don't exactly know what that looks like, but having like stepped back and read and researched on it, that just seems like the way that we're trying to, to tackle it. It's like it's like trying to tackle food security by by buying our way out of it. That hasn't been working for the last 30, 40 years either. Um, I could go in a whole nother nother segue with that one, but I'll try to stick with conservation. Um, So I'm not sure what that would look like for smaller organizations like mine, smaller farms like mine, because, you know, currently, and we kind of talked about this before we started recording, but, you know, if I I wanted to say I put a, a small percentage of my farm into CRP, I would get like $3. And it it, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense on a, a my my scale is like micro scale farming right I'm I'm definitely micro scale when we're talking about just around an acre that's teeny tiny, um you know cover crop seed doesn't cost that much when you're on small scale too, and so that would you know if it was them funding cover crops that wouldn't be a big impact for me and I I also struggle with the idea of incentivizing these things because we shouldn't need to be incentivizing doing these doing the right thing because if we say that for what it is it's incentivizing doing the right thing incentivizing not destroying things that help us live and survive as a human population um so and so that's that's tough for me like i don't want to go as far as like the government needs to come in and start like you know, fining people for X amount of damage, and at the same time, I'm just like, well, what's gonna make some of these people stop? I I really don't know the answer to that, um, and it's something that I kind of grapple with a lot, and just in thinking while I'm you know while I'm out there in the field, um, so yeah, I'm not sure you know what would help as far as um, these kind of blanket style programs, and maybe it's just these blanket style programs don't really work, uh, because the other thing I'm thinking about is. These people who have hundreds or thousands of acres, right, they already have, uh, you know, they're already very financially sound and very, they have that land equity component with them. And really what it ends up leading to is the people with the most land equity are the people who benefit the most financially from these programs. And so it also contributes to intra-farmer inequities, um, which is another really tough thing. And so, yeah, there's, there's so many moving pieces to that, but I, I really struggle with finding out how the federal government can actually be helpful um, when it comes to you know, just basically just spending, which is what we're talking about with the farm bill. It's not, it's not you know, conservation policy that requires you to do um, you know, these certain things. It's really, it's really just a spending uh, question, but maybe that's what, what we also need. We also need some kind of reform about um, what can and can't be done within agriculture um, especially when you're operating at extremely large scales that impact whole watersheds um, and ecosystems. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but I, th- those are kind of my, my initial thoughts on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's what I got for that one.
0: Talking with larger scale farmers or maybe even some folks in, in previous episodes of this podcast, it I think there's always a little bit of that economic component that keeps people from that. And I, I think that is, I guess when we hear out, in the agricultural space, is like voluntary incentives versus, you know, regulatory penalties. It's, it's that the assumption that people are, you know, ho- are doing uh, things that they believe are right, or maybe they want to move in that direction more, but don't see an economic path there that lets them keep farming. And, and uh, whether that's, that's correct or not, I think that's some of some of what's out there um, that I hear at least, but yeah, I, I was uh, resonating with what you were saying about kind of throwing money at problems. That is kind of like a United States uh, core thing that I think we do is we just think we can throw as much money at problems and that'll fix it. But um, yeah, I'm with you on, on that. Um, We talked a little, Oh, go ahead, Zach.
2: Oh, oh, just a a point follow-up on, on that thought, Ryan. It seems like our um, system has been, that let's produce the the most uh, food product that we can at the cheapest cost. And if we can cut corners on things we're not quantifying like ecosystem health, uh, the value of water, uh, the value of of labor and, and people on the farm, quality of life for our communities, food in our bellies, you know, <laughs> it's like the list could go on. We're cutting corners on those things to produce a food, to take our land and produce food products that are going to, you know, uh, biofuels and and uh, commodity crops that aren't necessarily, can't go out in the field and and start chopping on them and eat them you know and so i'm just wondering if we can recalibrate our system that we can put conservation we can put food production which is really what agriculture was intended for uh you know uh, as baselines and then have the market to be calibrated towards that uh, versus other things. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering uh, to your point, Ryan, uh, and, and, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying, uh, Ponta, about how when you start paying attention to the underground ecosystem, we start u- uh, utilizing like heritage breeds and, and native breeds of plants. Um, then, yeah, maybe it does require a, a little bit extra thought or planning or preparation or people, et cetera, but you've been able to have positive results.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's also, you know, our, our learning curve as a society to, to live within our limits, right. As, as one species of animal here, right. It's, you know, we, we have this perspective, um, that, re- that is reflected directly in our systems of humans are the king of the earth. Um, and we cannot live without so many things on this earth, uh, um, and yeah, so we, we really have to, I think, I think it was the land Institute that put it this way to, to learn, to live within our limits is, uh, I think I heard that from them.
0: So before we started recording, we talked a little bit about how some of these government programs or, or the conservation programs in particular, aren't really set up to be helpful of far, for farmers of your size or even farmers growing, you know, food, specialty crops, market, market garden things. Um, and I think you had a couple ideas maybe about uh equipment that would be helpful or or you know cost sharing. Um I think closest that it gets to kind of your size of production is um equip incentivizing like uh, high tunnels and uh but other other things yeah just kind of curious um as um someone in the earlier stages of their farming uh career I guess I I would say you're a beginning farmer at this point. Um that's how you can categorize yourself. Um but yeah along those lines of supports that that you could receive and maybe uh, don't or aren't very available to you. Do you have any thoughts about those?
1: Yeah. So I, I definitely consider myself a beginner farmer and um, we'd talked a little bit about equipment, which is a really important one. so um, one of my things that I would love to see is research and development going into uh small, like smaller equipment. Like I think I mentioned like a uh, BCS harvesters and, uh, and you know, that, that kind of size. Um, so you're not having to buy a whole tractor, um, which would just put you in incredible amounts of debt, like it does for a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, I think if there was some research in, you know, small grain harvesters, um, or, uh, mechanized ways of, of really cutting down, uh, cover crops. I know I've seen some people, um, with those kind of like drill attachments, uh, up. Um, basically like hedge trimmers and put them on rollers to to cut down uh, and, you know, chop and drop uh, cover crop in place, which is really cool. But something even, you know, just a little bit bigger than that would be awesome. And I I, I also don't see a ton of energy being put into um, the idea of solar tractors either. I know the French are kind of one of the leading countries on, on solar tractors right now. Um, and so I think if we were to get some money into that it would it would be amazing too because then you then you're including your alternate energy sources there with um with that and i mean larger media you know mid-sized farms could afford to um in helping them afford to put in solar panels for on-farm equipment would be another game changer um i think too and so you know investing in that solar infrastructure is, it could be a component if the equipment Um, you know, the electric equipment were there. And that's another thing I would really love to see. Um, And I I currently, uh, some people ask me, well, why don't you just use electric? You're no fossil fuels. So why don't you just use, you know, like solar, you know, electric? And I was like, well, because our local, you know, energy company does source solar, but it also burns coal. So what's the difference between, you know, you saying I'm no fossil fuel, but the thing I plugged it into was generated from coal. That's still, you know, So there's still some infrastructure um, components there um, that need to to change or, you know, through natural gas. I think they also do natural gas for some of their electric production. But um, yeah, so, you know, reinforcing our solar networks, really building our solar networks out and then having equipment that that matches that, I think, would be really awesome to see research and development money go into.
0: So it sounds like best case scenario for for you for a tractor in the future would maybe be on farm solar panels that generate your electricity there on the farm and charge your tractor. Is that something you'd be interested in maybe?
1: I would definitely be interested in that. Yeah, that would be awesome. I,
0: I think I'll follow up on a different uh, government question. I don't know that this is really in the conservation uh, title of the farm bill, but in terms of beginning farmers and access to land and capital, um, I think you mentioned earlier that, that finding li- land is is particularly hard, and, and we know that for, for beginning farmers across the country, particularly people who maybe don't inherit a farm from family members of previous generations. Um, but yeah, do you have – I mean, this is putting you on the spot. Do you have any creative thoughts about about land access? Uh, I guess you found kind of a different way of getting at it um, in your current situation, but um, yeah. Yeah
1: yeah, I don't want any of it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want the capital. I don't want the land access. Um, another component of the work that I've been doing through the farm, uh, is on an initiative called food is a public work. And within that system, uh, I would be able to be a farmer and not need to own land and only farm to feed the 40 million people who don't have three meals a day in this country. Uh, all year round uh, <laughs> uh, with the food as a public work project, um, which our, our, our food policy council actually just penned a letter of support for it. Um, it would essentially be setting up food security farms that are city and or county or potentially even state jobs. Right? And so um, you know, in, in my plan, you could have a million dollar operating budget with 16 farmers And that's 14 and a half, you know, full-time hours towards farming, the rest towards logistics, because obviously you still have to get the food places and you still have to do orderings of things. And like, there's still a logistical component, even though you're not marketing and selling. Um, And so, you know, 14 and a half labor hours, you can produce between five to six million dollars worth of food a year. And so for a million in, you can get five to six million out. And that out is going directly, you know, market firsts, not like seconds, which I don't really, you know, second, it's a whole other topic, but, uh, you know, really the the best of the best and all of it going to people directly instead of being filtered through this didn't get sold at market or, you know, this was gleaned after the fact and going to the food bank. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, a, a million in five to six million out. We have city and county land that is underutilized that is really great for agricultural production. Um, in that plan, we would have farmers specializing in vegetable production, uh, orchard production, and animal production are kind of the main three uh, components to that. And an additional component of it is to, you know, create obviously, if you have animals, you're going to need a processing facility. So there is some startup cost in that. So a processing facility and a commercial kitchen. Right. Because if we're really producing to scale, we're going to have so much fresh that we're going to need to can it and we're going to need to to break down birds. Right. If we have chickens, for example, or it's just something you're going to have to do. Um, The amazing thing about that component within my plan is, you know, we won't be we won't be slaughtering every single day of the week, right? Douglas County has an extreme lack of facility to do that. And so we could actually, below market rate, um, rent that space out to local producers to help fund the, the project altogether. Um, if in the plan it is to do two meals per week, so we're not using that commercial kitchen all year round either, or every day of the week either. We could be leasing that out to local farmers to can their own goods. We could be leasing that out to um, aspiring chefs to pilot their their restaurants and catering businesses um, to, to create a, a financial stability component to the project as well and so ultimately you know I don't I don't want any of the uh, that money I don't want to own land I would like to decommodify land I would like to use the land that's currently public and de- decommodified or even buy it from the private system and and make it public again make bring the Commons back Um and and feed people because that's really why I got into this work. I personally have experience with food insecurity, mostly as an adult, uh, mostly during graduate school. If I'm gonna completely uh, you know zoom in on that, that those those years of my life, um, and I just don't want that for anybody else, right? I mean, there's 12 million 12 million kids go hungry every day in this country. Out of that 40 million total, and you know, I'm here sitting in Lawrence public schools office, um, thinking about the, the meal buddies program that we that we have put together that helps feed some of those families and I'm, you know, I'm struggling figuring out how to fund and source all that stuff and it, it breaks my heart it really does it's really hard, hard work emotionally but it's necessary work and if we had a, a project like food is a public work. You know, people in my position wouldn't have to work that hard to get it all done and, and, and ask for all this money from X, Y and Z and all these different places and grants and, you know, have that kind of uncertainty in, in financial cycles. We would have a place to go to that was funded with our tax dollars, which <laughs> we often don't see a lot of return on in a lot of different ways, um, you know, feeding our local communities with local produce. So, you know, going back to the component of cutting all that fossil fuel out of agriculture that's a huge component to it too. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's many other facets of food as a public work, but to answer your question, I don't want to buy land. I don't want to own land. I don't want all these. Yeah. I don't want it. I want, I want that for everyone, not for me.
0: Yeah. And I don't remember how I phrased the question exactly, but, but land access may be less so than, you know, the, the ability, access and the ability to farm, um, which I, I think you just really nailed. And I, I think that project is so cool and interesting. So I was hoping I could get you to talk about it a little bit and and there it was. So yeah, that's, that's very exciting to see. I'm, I'm really thrilled to see what happens with that in the future. So
2: I, I think it's really cool uh, Ponta, that you really connected the dots to the whole farm bill in the sense that we talked about conservation practices, but 80% of the U S farm bill is nutrition programs. Uh, more or less. And, and if uh, a key part of, of farming is to produce food, uh, then why do we have such a problem in one of the richest uh, countries in the world uh, that we still have our children, our people uh, still facing food insecurity and being hungry? Uh, it's just a shame and it just demonstrates to me a pretty glaring uh, element of uh, of our food system uh, not being calibrated quite right, you know. So I think that's a that's a unique um, and good perspective you have here on on connecting the dots. I, I want to just bring in the point that you know uh, a 2018 report that I saw from the EPA showed that 24 percent of of the waste to our municipal solid waste uh, is food. We threw away 35 million tons of wasted food in 2018. And uh, just unbelievable that, uh, you know, like almost the the, the most things that we uh, throw away, uh, one of the top ones is food. And and it's just a shame because that was a lot of time and energy from our farmers and and, uh, a lot of uh, opportunity wasted to help uh, feed people. So, Uh, Just wanted to insert that in the discussion here.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point, too. And we don't have systems set up to catch that even for composting to then turn it, you know, keep it out of the landfill and turn it back into something that can be utilized as an input. And I guess one other thing I do want to mention with, you know, money and numbers, like the money is there for food as a public work. Um, In 2020, we spent 100, was it $120 billion on agriculture in that year? $120 $120 billion in one year. If we were to take like less than 6% of that and put it into food as a public work, we could set up $100 million farm endowments in every state, D.C. and Puerto Rico if we wanted to. Six, less than 6% of what we spent in one year could set up $100 million farm endowments that could so feasibly run food as a public work and, you know, at least one in each state you see in Puerto Rico for 50 to 70 years in one sweep of a one year of a drop in the bucket. Um, and so, yeah, as you alluded to that, that money is there. We spend, I think it's like 72 billion on, on title four uh, in that farm bill. And I am by no means uh, trying to say that snap should go away overnight because it can't, that would be devastating to so many, many people. and And I think some people who've, Heard about food as a public work kind of saw it as an attack on that and it's it's not an attack but it, it is a criticism right we've had snap for 30 40 years and the food insecure population has remained between 10 and 14 percent to that entire time it has it has made no dent in that percent right it has definitely fed people i've been on it it helped me survive it helps a lot of people survive all people i care about too um and so, you know, we obviously still need that to a certain extent. But if we were to able, if we were able to, you know, ease into a system of bringing more people into agriculture, setting up local food production, giving, in, providing below market rate infrastructure to farmers, restaurateurs, people who are in culinary, um, you know, get rid of so much of that fossil fuel directly feed that 10 to 14 percent of the population who's missing out on it. Like where are we where are we losing there? Right. Like where <laughs> how how is any of that bad? Um and and yeah, I don't know. I the money's there. The money is absolutely there.
2: Well I, I hope our uh congressional delegation and, and staffers are listening and uh and for for everyone else we'll uh encourage them to uh think about some of these things uh A little more open-minded some possibilities.
0: I think the the phrase that was coming to my mind is as you've been talking about a lot of these things, Ponta, was you know, the agricultural system overall is really focused on large yields and large, you know, land use, regardless of how it harms the environment, and to create as much profit for the system at large instead of focusing on actually feeding human beings. And that's I. You know, some of the big challenges. I mean, sometimes I I feel it, it feels hard to address these things because they're so systemic and such huge uh, systems. But I I really like your attitude and and the style of of focusing on that county level, um, or even maybe larger, you know, regional level. But but some of the the programs which the with the food is a public work, um, program. So I again, I'm just really excited to see see what happens. So. Thanks for yeah, I mean, all your thoughts. I guess the one
1: other thing I'll add is, you know, I'm I'm a chef too. So mm-hmm. like I want there to be super ridiculously innovative chefs in five-star restaurants serving up these like wild 17 course meals and things, but like let's focus on feeding people first. Like we can we can have you know those those systems can exist, it can coexist, right? We can have a system that is built to feed and make sure that everyone has what they need. And then also still at the same time have systems where people are are buying beautiful produce and and goods to make these really amazing meals and and have a whole industry of restaurants like those those two can coincide um and one other thing that i i i think i'm trying to remember what the tagline is i've used before is like the first person to dollar menu farm to table wins agriculture so the first person to uh, to be able to make a dollar menu out of local food wins agriculture. And so, yeah, I just wanted to throw out there that these two things can can coexist. We can still have the the innovative, creative restaurant industry that in you know fascinates me um, personally too. And but maybe not and but let's feed people first and make sure that that base is covered before we start going into all these other places and
0: spaces thanks for joining us for this episode this kansas rural center farm bill podcast series is brought to you by generous funding from the national healthy soils policy network to learn more about nhspn visit soilpolicynetwork.org thank you again to my co-host zach pastora our communications coordinator charlotte french allen and most of all thank you to Pantaleon for letting us interview him for this episode to find out more about the Kansas Rural Center and our work, visit kansasruralcenter.org. And please join us for our annual Food and Farm Conference in Salina, Kansas, on November 11 and 12, 2022. We hope to see you there. Like and share this episode with friends. And if you if there's something you'd like to see featured in our podcast feed in the future, please reach out to us at media at kansasruralcenter.org. Ponce of Leon,
2: keep up the good work. Yeah, thank,
0: you. thank you so much for joining us. And actually, I, yeah. I didn't really give like a thanks. <laughs> no, Maybe <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> I don't know. No, you doing <laughs> it right now? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for joining.